Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Donna Lee Baskin joins me. She's a resident of Yellowknife, and uh, Donna uh, Lynn Howard, uh, it's a redundant question we normally ask, but this time it's not. How are you? Well, <laughs> we're safe. Um, we, are, we have made it to Calgary. We arrived about an hour ago, um, and we picked Calgary as our destination because I, my youngest daughter lives here, so, and uh, we have other family. Um, so we, we arrived safely here this morning, and um, I've just been sort of kind of decompressing for the last hour and really taking in um, the reality of what has happened. Well, I thank you for uh, taking the time to talk to us, particularly after the uh, very long time you were on the road and everything you experienced. Uh, you and I had a very interesting conversation last evening as well. How, how long were you on yeah. the road? Um, we left Yellowknife on uh, Thursday. Um, sorry, yeah, Thursday evening at supper time, um, and we got to uh, high level around three in the morning that that day. Um, we crashed pretty hard. Um, we were lucky enough to get a hotel room. Um, simply on the good luck of arriving at a hotel that had a cancellation um, just at that moment. Uh, we were fully expecting to stay at the evacuation center, um, but uh, we got a little bit of rest, and then we spent the day at the evacuation center and just trying to make sure we had provisions and also checking in with other travelers uh, trying to share resources and share information. So we got back on the road around supper time last night, uh, stopped again in Peace River to do the same thing, connect with others that were caravanning down. And, you know, everyone's just sort of trying their best. Um, if they see a polar bear license plate, um, they were stopping by to see if we could help with anything, help each other, and um, and then just kept on the road uh, traveling through until we made it to Calgary this morning. So glad that you uh, were able to do that. And the sense of community prevails among the residents of uh, Yellowknife and the Northwest Territories more broadly. What were the days like leading up to your evacuating? It's been surreal. Um, there's a lot I'm going to have to process um, looking back on it now from from this side of the evacuation. Um, by Monday, with the air quality issues, the discussion and the, and the fires were moving closer. And, and there were actually, I mean, the, the one that is making the most news 
um, is on the west side of the city. But in fact, the entire city is ringed by fires that have pretty much joined together coming from the north and from the east. Um, so the, the rumors and the discussion of what's going to happen if we were to be evacuated, what what are the plans? Um, and the the I think the that first um, government press conference was around then. So it's really just been sort of unfolding day by day. Um, and by Wednesday, throughout the day, um, everyone was quite sure that the announcement was going to be made for a citywide evacuation, um, which did come at 7.30 that evening. Um, I think because of this slow unfolding of it, um, I guess in slow motion, I should put it. Um, it. It was almost with disbelief. You you kind of know it's a reality, but you can't believe it's actually happening. Um, and I think we were all in that boat. So there has been a calm around the city. Um, I did not see people panicking. Um, it's been a really, uh, I guess, an orderly uh, dispersal, um, but I think we are all maybe in a state of shock, and and the reality is just beginning to fully sink in. Yeah, you know, looking at it from thousands of miles away, kilometers away, mm-hmm. it's terrifying. Trying to project yourself into that environment. Is doubly so. Have you ever seen anything like this or anything approximating this in the Northwest Territories, in the Yellowknife area? Um, the closest would be the um, evacuation of the Bechico re- residents. Uh, Bechico is a small community of about 800, um, an hour, um, I guess, an hour west of us. It's also on the Great Slave Lake. Um, so when the fires were approaching them, uh, three, I guess it must be three weeks ago now, they were evacuated to here. And also uh, previous to that, um, when there was flooding in Hay River earlier this summer, they were evacuated to Yellowknife. But it was on a smaller scale um, and the uh, I guess it was still that sense of the capital is impervi- impervious. Mm-hmm. I think maybe there was uh, a little bit of a sense that, oh, well, you know, uh, the capital the capital can absorb it all. And so we did have those prior experiences, but it was the disbelief that, uh-oh, now it's coming at us too. <laughs> yeah. Were you, born, were you born and raised in the Northwest Territories? I am not. I have spent 20 years of my life here in the Northwest Territories, um, uh, 10 up in the Inuvik or the Beaufort Delta, uh, where my daughters grew up and graduated from high school. Um, and I've been with the college throughout that time. But I'm originally from New Brunswick and grew up in Nova Scotia. No. Oh. The beautiful Atlantic yeah. provinces. What, uh, if I may ask, yeah. what uh, what was your uh, position at the at the college? 
I am on faculty. I teach in the developmental studies program. So it is college preparation um, and upgrading for um, adults returning to the educational environment. Okay. When we spoke last night, you spoke Mm -hmm. about leaving virtually everything behind. Everything, virtually everything. What are your Mm -hmm. concerns for Yellowknife now? And really for your life potentially to be massively interrupted, even more so than it has been. Yeah. Well, I mean, some of the big discussions um, today, once I got here to Calgary with family, but I've also been on the phone with um, my former students, with my friends that are displaced around the the province. We're all sort of in the same boat. When do you think we'll go back? What do you think will be there? Will will the fire? Um, will we? Will will some of our homes be gone, or will there be building loss? What what kind of damage? Or maybe we'll be lucky and there won't be any damage, but the length of time before the fire threat is reduced could be a considerable time. So there's this sense of standing on the precipice and not being able to see below. It's we, we we're we're really unsure what we're facing. But almost everybody um, is in the same boat. They locked their doors. Um, took what they could, um, and you know you're making decisions in that moment. What is a priority? What um, what are the the emotionally valuable items um, that you can rank at the highest priority that you will um, allot some space to in what limited space you have, and and you just you you're walking away from everything. So, I mean, as I was driving down the highway, I part of me was thinking I have to accept the fact that there might, uh, you know, all the all of the detritus detritus of my life might not be there for me to go back to. Maybe I will be rebuilding, uh, and I have to I have to keep talking to myself about that so it becomes something that I can. I can process and accept. Yeah. Donna Lynn, I, I really do thank you for taking the time to yeah. talk to us. Uh, I can't, can't imagine, I cannot, literally cannot imagine what you're facing, how you're feeling. And I hope we can stay in touch and talk to you again. Absolutely. I, I just want to, um, if I can take a moment, to just point out that another issue that, I mean, there's the emotional part of leaving. But I know that a lot of people were leaving without financial resources. Um, I've been in touch with students, or or many of my friends and colleagues are there as immigrants. They've been working in, you know, hourly jobs, and some were not paid before they left because it wasn't the pay period. So they're coming down the highway or they're settling in at evacuation centers along the way and they're really without resources. 
so one of the things I'm really, um, I was really heartwarmed to find out this morning when I got here is that there are various groups are setting up just amongst themselves uh, to try to raise funds. Um, like a, there's an Instagram group has, has popped up yeah. trying to get people um, put their their email addresses right. and then just others that do have resources are trying to send $20 I'm sure, or $50. I'm sure you know. there's going to be lots of opportunity um, um, for people to, to contribute. And I'm sure people across this country yeah. will, will step up and want to step up. Thank you again. And, uh, and I'll you. stay in touch with you. Yes, thank you so much. Um, really appreciate the concern and the reaching out. Okay, it, it it really touches it touches my heart, but I know like that that concern that we're we're encountering throughout really kind of restores your faith in humanity. Thank you, Donald. Thank you. Let's go to the situation, the critical situation in Kelowna and West Kelowna, particularly. In British Columbia, in B.C., the Premier has declared a state of emergency. Uh, wildfires like have never been seen before in the province. Shanine Carr is Program Director at AM 1150 in Kelowna. Shanine, thank you very much for, for joining us. Can you give us just an overall sense of what it's like in Kelowna, West Kelowna, right now? Today, we are crossing our fingers and holding our breaths because the wind has died down compared to yesterday and the night before. And so that's allowing all of the air support um, and the fire crews to get in and really do the work. So we are hopeful, uh, if the weather stays the way that it is, that they'll be able to make a lot more headway today. And they might be able to take some of the the many neighbourhoods off of evacuation order, maybe downgrade them to alert and maybe remove some of the alerts and take some of the stress off the the many people in West Kelowna in particular, but also in Kelowna and Lake Country um, who are concerned about when they're going to have to pack up and go. Yeah, the McDougal Creek uh, wildfire developed very quickly, as I understand, and particularly from Thursday to yesterday, where reports say the fire increased 100 times in size in a day. And I reposted a video you posted, uh, Shanine, it's on my Twitter feed, at The Roy Green Show, and it looks terrifying. Can you give us uh, a sense of what it's like now in West Kelowna? How much has been lost? Because I know homes have been lost, and uh, and, uh, and a, a historic um, resort also very sadly lost. The Central Okanagan Regional District was actually supposed to have uh, a news conference with some updated information uh, about half an hour ago. Um, They weren't able to get that stream going. So we still have um, the information from yesterday where all they're telling us is it's numerous homes. uh, And yes, that Lake Okanagan Resort um, has been destroyed by fire. We're not sure the, uh, the scope or the sizes. Many of the homes are along West Side Road um, in the, the Traders Cove and Bear Creek areas is what we've been told. But unfortunately, we don't have um, updated numbers. And the big reason for that is the fire crews are still actively fighting the fire. And so they, they just can't they just can't do the count at this point. OK, you mentioned fire crews, the West Kelowna fire chief. I understand, is reported to have said his firefighters faced 100 years of firefighting in one night. Uh, they can't even conceive of this. 
Um, and just people ask me sometimes or send emails asking me about uh, West Kelowna versus Kelowna. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, West Kelowna are and Kelowna are on opposite sides of Okanagan Lake. And uh, and some of the, the, the ambers, which I understand the size of footballs, have actually been hurling across the lake. Is that correct? That's right. That's what started the, the fire in the, the Clifton Road uh, area on on Thursday night. The winds were very strong. They were gusting about uh, up to 50 kilometers an hour. And I don't think anybody expected that fire to jump the lake, but it was uh, believed to be embers from uh, the McDougal Creek fire, which just it picked up as, as quickly as it did. And uh, when went across the lake, and and there have been uh, there's a lot of concern with residents in West Kelowna and Kelowna. Uh, there had been yesterday, not so much today with calmer winds, but because it's just been so hot and so dry. We've come off a week of temperatures um, between 30 and 40 degrees, um, no rain in well over a month. Wow. And with that strong wind and that big fire, particularly in West Kelowna, there has been a lot of concern with people uh, about those flying embers and and uh, landing in their property and their hedges and their homes. And so that's just another added bit of anxiety. The first global news reporter to be at the scene, on the scene, in the Northwest Territories is Jamie Dahl, who, as I understand it, is in the Hay River Enterprise area. Now she joins us on the Roy Green Show. Jamie, uh, thank you so much for, for the time. And let me ask you, what, what do you see around you? Well, right now I am downtown Hay River, Northwest Territories. I'm right in front of the fire hall. And it's very quiet other than fire, some fire trucks moving around and a couple of planes flying overhead every so often. But it's a deserted town, Roy. Mm-hmm. And the damage that was done to uh, Hay River and Enterprise area, in that particular area of the Northwest Territories, what can you tell us? Well, we drove through Enterprise this morning, and yeah, that was sobering, very heartbreaking. Um, there are definitely homes lost, livelihoods lost, cars just sitting in a melted heap, uh, the town sign, you know, charred and mangled. There's homes also on the outskirts of Hay River that are also have been lost. We haven't seen those ones yet. This thing just came so quickly, and I just spoke with the Hay River fire chief, and you know, they he told us that they had been told four hours prior that this fire was 80 kilometers away, and you know, an hour later it was on the doorsteps of Enterprise. Said it just came so quickly. They were fighting it and evacuating Hay River. And they couldn't get to Enterprise in time. Um, and, yeah, it is mass destruction in that small hamlet. Yeah, the, the speed of these fires is just unbelievable. I mean, the, the, the fire chief in uh, West Kelowna, Kelowna West, was uh, apparently said what they dealt with in one day was what normally would be like a hundred years of fighting fires. It's just absolutely horrific. What's the... Uh, What's the situation now? What's the prognosis now as far as weather and, and fire control is concerned? 
Well, here in Hay River, as is the case also of in, in Yellowknife, where I've been the last few days, it's, you know, it's so unpredictable. It's all down to the wind. There is warmer temperatures, unfortunately, in the forecast ahead. This weekend has been a bit cool, cooler. They've had some rain. And so it's kind of a bit of a reprieve. Everyone's been able to sort of just catch their breath a little bit. But the word that I'm getting from the fire officials, especially here in Hay River, is that they have some tough days ahead. This fire is only seven kilometers from the community of Hay River. The fire up in Yellowknife, that one was about 15 kilometers at last update from the city of Yellowknife. Uh, so, yeah, not out of the woods, even close from the officials that that's the word from officials that we're hearing here in the Northwest Territory. You know, when we spoke with uh, Donna Lynn Baskin from Yellowknife at the end of the interview, she said, we don't know where we're going back to. We don't know if we'll be going back to anything, whether we'll still have our homes, whether we'll still have the things that are important to us in life. And that's a terrible amount of stress to live under. Jamie, could you take us a bit on a bit of a, I don't always use the word tour, but take us on a bit of a, uh, of, of a description of what you've seen and where you've seen it since you've arrived at, uh, in the Northwest Territories, if you don't mind. Yeah. Well, I think you just, you nailed it there. You know, it's just, it's been a mountain of uncertainty that these people have been facing. And, and not just this week. So many of these fires, they've been battling these things for weeks, weeks now. Hey, River, they were evacuated at the beginning of summer, this community already, and came back. And now they're facing it again. Uh, in Yellowknife, you know, just so much uncertainty. People not sure, are we going? Are we staying? You know, and, and like we talked about, it can happen so quickly. Um, it can just, you know, you know, it can enterprise. It can happen so quickly in Kelowna that no matter how prepared you are, we've seen the results of what, what can happen. Um, and so there is an undeniable amount of stress. There's stress because there's fear of the uncertainty and the unknown of home. But I think it's also really important to point out that these evacuations themselves they come with an incredible amount of burden. People, I talked to um, a, a single mother of four children who was about to board a flight from Yellowknife to Calgary the other day, and she said, I can't leave. You know, I, I, have, I have to put, I need to make some money. I need to feed my children. I, you know, I, I can't not work. Uh, you know, things like that. People need, need to work. So everything in their life is paused. Um, there are people that, you know, are on vacation and they, their dogs are being looked after by the neighbor. So now the neighbors, we talked to one guy and he had four dogs. He was driving from Yellowknife to Calgary. He was looking after their dogs. Another person was looking after a couple's children because they had gone on like a, uh, on a little overnight trip or something and, and um, couldn't get back in time for the evacuation. So she had four children with her that she was uh, fleeing with. So it's incredibly, of course, disruptive. On top of all of that, the unknown of, you know, just the magnitude of these fires. And in a lot of cases, too, you can actually see them. Sometimes you'll see the big plume on the horizon. Or there'll be a day, like today in Hay River, it's blue sky, you know, so you wouldn't even really think. I don't even smell the smoke in the air. But just on the outskirts lingers this threat. Yeah. If I remember correctly, the fire in Fort McMurray a couple of years ago was called the Beast because of what it did. And these certainly these fires deserve a similar uh, descriptor because, you know, when you said, was it 50, 50 miles away in, in a couple of hours, it's, it's on top of the community. 
Mm-hmm. That's just that's just mind numbing. Just want to remind our our listeners: redcross.ca or one eight hundred four eight one eleven eleven. If you wish to provide some financial support for the folks who are in such distress, the personal stories. Hey, Jamie, we have about thirty seconds, but the personal stories. When you you know you have the big picture, but when you talk to the people and the and you hear the individual stories, which you've just told us, they just they just bury their themselves into your heart. Oh. Last night, we ended up sleeping on a cot in the bottom, like the basement of a really small hotel in a really small community, the first stop out of Northwest Territory, because there was, or out of Yellowknife, there was no no beds. And I sat up in the evening with an elder, and it was just so touching. And she was telling me about the fires that, you know, that they had been evacuated from when she was a girl, um, when she was 16, and now she's 76. Uh, and she was just sharing, you know, just how heart-wrenching it is to see this this magnitude of fire and the dryness that they're experiencing um, up here that she's never seen before. The fall, the early fall that is coming at the end of July, the leaves turning. Uh, and, yeah, th- th- there's so many store- personal stories, but there's also... Um, this common thread, and they say Northerners are, are a hearty, strong people, right? and they're very united, and that could not be more true in, in what I'm with. Pierre Polyev is the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Mr. Polyev joins us on the Roy Green Show. Mr. Polyev, thank you for the time. And first of all, your thoughts on, uh, on what's happening in the Northwest Territories and in British Columbia. Well, it's just terrific to see families fleeing from their homes, uh, fleeing for their lives, uh, losing their property. And uh, it's also inspiring to see the, the work of the firefighters who heroically put their lives in the line for their fellow citizen. Uh, the Conservative Party will uh, work cooperatively with the government to support any and all efforts to combat the fires, to protect those who are dispossessed, and in harm's way, uh, and uh, to uh, come to the need of uh, those suffering. So uh, I encourage all Canadians to donate. I understand the Red Cross is accepting donations, and I encourage you to donate to your fellow Canadians. Yes, indeed. And we did hear from our first guest from Yellowknife that there's a tremendous amount of support on that highway as people from the Northwest Territory stood up for each other as they were driving from the territories to Alberta and perhaps others to British Columbia. Let me ask you a few questions that have to do with the the issues in this country. First of all, the housing crisis in Canada. In the next hour, we're going to be speaking to a lawyer who is uh, a member of TRAC in, uh, in, uh, in Vancouver, the Tenant Resource and Advisory Center. One-bedroom apartment, Mr. Polyev, on average now over $3,000 a month, the most expensive city in the country for renters. It's a very difficult environment. What do you say about this? And, and you know, each politician before you, when you run for office, you say you have a plan. Justin Trudeau said it in 2015. Do you have a plan which would uh, really deal with the issue of the housing crisis in Canada? Yes, and what distinguishes me from Trudeau is that I have a track record. When I was housing minister, the average rent was about $950. The average mortgage payment on a brand-new home was $1,400. The average price of a home was $450,000. <laughs> Hard to remember that that was only eight years ago. 
But after eight years of Trudeau, housing costs have doubled. Eight years of Trudeau, the rent has doubled. Eight years of Trudeau, the average mortgage payment has doubled. So what would you do? After, well, we need to build more homes it's, uh, and, re- and reduce inflationary spending that drives up inter- interest rates. So what are the two parts that go into a mortgage payment? Interest and principal. Let's start with interest. Interest rates are being driven up by deficit spending that causes inflation and forces the bank of Canada to raise rates. So that is uh, one thing we can do is cap government spending, balance the budget to bring down inflation and interest rates. Second part of your mortgage payment is, uh, is the down payment, the, the payment of principal, which is based on the house price. Price is determined by supply and demand. We don't have enough homes. We have the fewest homes per capita of any country in the G7 after eight years of Trudeau. We actually have fewer homes than we did when he took office eight years ago as a uh, per capita basis. Um, we have the most land in the G7, so, so we should be able to have the most homes. But what stops us is government red tape, uh, the time it takes to get a building permit. According to C.D. Howe, the building permit delays taxes, charges, uh, lawyers, consultants, etc., add up to $350,000 in extra costs for every Toronto home, and about $1.2 million in costs for every newly built home in Vancouver. Much of that is local. My common sense plan, though, is to say to local governments, either you speed up and lower the cost of building permits, or I will withhold your federal grants. I'll require every city uh, permit 15% more home building per year, or they'll lose federal money. Yeah, cities, though, as you know, cities are running into difficulty with financing, and cities cannot run a deficit. So you would provide them with uh, with what incentives, other than telling them either you do it or your monies are going to be cut, bo- cut back? I'll give them a building bonus if uh, they do. If they uh, increase home building by 15% per year or more, I will give them a building bonus. So they will have a financial incentive just to get out of the way and let builders building. The okay. thing is, they don't actually need to do anything. It's what they need to stop doing. They need to get out of the way and grant faster permits. Uh, we don't need more government spending. In fact, we now have more expensive government housing programs than ever before in Canadian history. It hasn't worked. No. Trudeau's got an $89 billion affordable housing program. Guess what? We built fewer homes last year than we built in 1972, a half century ago. Okay, It's the bureaucracy we have to get out of the way, and that's what I... Yeah, but we only added 98,000 bureaucrats since Mr. Trudeau's been in in office. It's not a big number, is it? They're not building any homes. Okay. Uh, Some other issues here. You talk about the federal government's engagement with the provinces. Western provinces continue their challenge of the federal environment minister, Mr. Gilbo, and his move to remove fossil fuels from electricity generation by 2035. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith was on my program last Sunday. She was furious. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe is with us tomorrow. What would you do uh, as far as this edict or this, 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 this drive decision by Mr. Minister Gilbo is concerned? You mean that you're talking about the same Minister Gilbo, who's now the vice chair yes. of Communist China's uh, environment? Yes, and the chairperson is uh, the chairperson is number six in the Politburo. Right. So now the the, the the Communist government is merging with the Trudeau cabinet on the issue That's of environment. That's a bit of a reach, China, but okay. China being China being the number one 
emitter of greenhouse gases in the world. Two years of growth in China's greenhouse gases is more than all we emit in a single year in Canada. So, uh, first of all, when it comes to Western Canada, it's no question that the prairies are very reliant on fossil fuels. So here's my common sense plan. Let's allow the energy sector to grow, but let's use the federal extra federal revenues that come from that to incentivize carbon-free electricity, like nuclear, carbon capture and storage, uh, tidal power in East Coast Canada, uh, hydroelectricity development by the building of more dams, uh, and uh, other sources of energy that do not emit into the atmosphere. Instead of uh, blocking traditional energy, why don't we green light green projects and make this the fastest place to get a, per- a building permit for green projects like the ones I just mentioned. That would be a positive way to, to put more affordable emissions-free energy onto our grid rather than just taxing our working class for using traditional energy and shutting down electrical markets in key provinces of our country. Okay, I have to ask you this question, and it's almost like a setup question. It's my like by feeding you a softball that you can hit right out of the park, but it is a story. The Toronto Star is reporting unnamed Liberal MPs grousing about Justin Trudeau leading the party and worrying about losing the next federal election as badly, at least one MP, as I understand it, suggested they may lose the election as badly as former Ontario Liberal Party Premier Kathleen Wynne lost the provincial election, the most recent one she was involved in, and the party, in fact, uh, was left without, with so few seats, they didn't have official party status, which was the Progressive Conservative parties federally, was their fate in 1993. But what do you make of the story? It's incredible Um, that Trudeau's own MPs are turning on him. I mean, um, you know, when I saw the comments about Justin Trudeau, I thought, geez, these are nasty, harsh uh, uh, comments, and then I realized they actually came from liberal MPs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wonder if, if uh, he's losing control of his party, and it's no wonder. Uh, Trudeau is bringing a 61 cent a liter carbon tax that will cost thousands of dollars to every family. He's double housing costs. Uh, crime is up 40%. Uh, gun sh- shootings up 101%. Uh, work no longer pays with higher income tax. Uh, we see nurses and carpenters now live in parking lots because they can't afford their home. Seniors choosing between eating and heating. Right. Many right. immigrants say they wish they hadn't come here because of the misery he's brought. It's no wonder he's so unpopular. It's well-deserved. And it's time. But the good news is it wasn't like this before Trudeau, and it won't be like this after Canada, after he's gone. Okay, I said, home to Canada. We know I, I, I said it was a softball question, but I had to ask okay. it because there it is. It was right there. So it, I wanted your comments on it. All right. Now, here's the here's the other last question for you. And I wish we had more time. But uh, you have now a kinder, gentler image that's being presented. And I think it's working for you. But I said uh, the other day or last weekend, I said polling shows. So I was just going by what I'd seen in polling that women may not favor you as much as they favor Justin Trudeau. I got so much pushback from women voters across the country. They thought it was me saying it. It was the polling. Uh, talk to us about the image change in 30 seconds. Well, you know, I think uh, a lot is said about that. But whether I wear uh, glasses or not, I've got the best vision for the country. A vision <laughs> of a country that works for the people who do the work, where the common sense of the common people are, is united for our common home. That's 
my purpose. And regardless of, of image and style, that's the substance I'm going to bring to the prime minister's office. I like the line. And you would uh, you would urge uh, the ener- the uh, environment minister not to go to China, even though uh, conservative uh, MPs and I believe Minister Kent went to China for the similar group a lot earlier. Well, that was before China took our yeah. people hostage and opened yeah, that's up right. police stations in our country. Right? That's right. You know, Trudeau has said he admires our China's basic communist dictatorship. So maybe there's a kindred ideology between his socialist government and theirs. Mr. Polyev, I appreciate the time. You look good without the glasses. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I feel good. I've had a great summer. It's been wonderful to be out with the Canadian people and have my wife along for the, the journey as well. You may recall the global news story in June was headlined, Why AI's Top Minds Think It Could End Humanity and How We Can Stop It. Also, uh, as you may have seen this this week, the Canadian government is consulting on what they're calling a generative AI code of conduct. If you really know what that means, then you're better than I am. So just how dangerous is the existence, or to the existence, of humanity is artificial intelligence and why professor Joshua Benjiro is back with us founder scientific director of Mila Quebec AI Institute his research helped create the groundwork for today's AI technology and he's described as a godfather of AI development and uh, the professor has expressed concern that AI may lead to a massive catastrophe and was signed a one um sentence letter that we sent out, and we're going to be speaking to the organization that sent it out tomorrow. Professor Bangio, thank you so much for coming back. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. You and I spoke two months ago about the true concern you have, Professor, about the possible catastrophes awaiting humankind through AI. And now, last week, we're told Ottawa is consulting with that generative AI code of conduct. Is it too little, too late? Um, and how much, before we get into the details, how much of a risk is AI, as it exists today, how much of a risk is it posing to humanity? As it exists today, I, I don't think um, it, it's, it's, you know, extremely dangerous is, is uh what may happen in, in, in a few years or decades, it's hard to say. One short-term danger, I think, is the use of these generative AI systems to um, produce deep fakes and misinformation and influence our elections. This is something that could happen in the coming year or two or three. This is maybe a few steps away from the current technology. So th- that, I think, the government needs to... Um, deal with uh, fairly quickly. Okay, the uh, the one sentence letter that you signed, along with other scientists, uh, suggests that AI must be looked at or treated uh, with the same concern that we have for pandemic and nuclear war. So, how far down the road are we lo- looking at as far as that's concerned? Well, that's part of the problem. We don't know. It, it, in in my estimate, and many of my colleagues. It could be as little as a few years, let's say five years, but it could also be a couple of decades. In any case, what's going on really is we are making rapid progress towards building machines that will be as smart or smarter than us. And, you know, humans have always been making tools, but we've never made tools that would be smarter than us in in many ways. And 
tools, as they become more powerful, can generally be dual use. They could be very useful, but they could also be very dangerous. And so we need guardrails. We need government to think about what can go wrong and start uh, putting in place what's needed to protect the public. Yeah, I, I read something the other day that suggested uh, AI, the most advanced forms of AI today, at least that's what I understand that was most advanced, can process up to a trillion pieces of information in a nanosecond. Is that true? Uh, no. <laughs> well, good. Uh, <laughs> that scared me. But, but it, it can process information much faster than, than a human. So, for example, um, the current state-of-the-art systems, they have read a, lar- read a large fraction of what is on the Internet, uh, an amount of data that would take uh, a normal human being tens of thousands of years, uh, no, not tens of thousands of lifetimes to go through. And they've extracted all kinds of facts from that, and they can regurgitate those facts when you ask them. In, in plain English or French, by the way. Oh, good. So we don't have a bilingualism issue with AI in Canada. <laughs> in fact, they, they can speak a lot of languages. Now, there are still languages, so uh, like indigenous languages or more, uh, you know, d- d- languages from which we uh, which have a lot of data, like a lot of African languages for which they don't do so well. So when and why did you and other pioneers of AI technology first begin to be alarmed. So for me, it started in the winter after the arrival of ChatGPT that many people have played with. And if they haven't, I encourage them to play with that so they get a better understanding of how far we've gotten. Uh, and this was a big surprise, how, how much the, the these systems had improved over the last few years. And it made me realize that, that like, maybe around January, February, March, gradually made me realize that um, systems that could be dangerous if misused or if we don't know how to control them uh, could come in very few years. And we know that legislation and even international treaties and so on take years, if not decades, to put in place. So there's a kind of urgency here for society to take stock of that progress. Do you think that there's the will... Uh, to do what needs to be done? Or do you think there could be national greed on the part of certain nations, maybe a number of nations, some perhaps involved in in conflict, to engage AI, just let it do its thing and provide the kind of support military or otherwise that they believe they need in order to win their conflicts? Is that a concern? It is. It is. The, the AI arms race is is a danger, because it's going to make, there are two issues with that. So one, countries that are developing AI for a military purpose uh, may cut corners in terms of safety and protecting the public uh, because they are in this race with other countries. And um, the other problem is if these AI systems, we lose control of them and they are controlling weapons or even worse, like, you know, nuclear weapons, then Anything we do wrong with them can have uh, hugely catastrophic outcomes. Yeah, so the scenario, and you and I talked about this last time, the scenario that's uh, often brought forward is the uh, AI is uh, asked to deal with the issue of climate change. And AI deduces as well, the problem with climate change is humans, so we have to get rid of humans. And, And it creates... Uh, this sounds like Terminator. It creates a, a virus that we have no defense against, and, and that's the end of that. That's the end of humanity. Uh, 
Is this is that just a Terminator type movie, or is that potentially reality? Um, no, it, it, it's more like um, a story to explain how um, what we intend with the use of a tool like AI may turn into something that's dangerous. But of course. I assume if we program such a system, we would tell it to not harm people. The problem is, even if we say that, it, it may understand it in different ways, and it may still end up doing things that are dangerous for us. Yeah, if it, and it, if, it's, if it thinks more quickly than we do, or, or, or if it deduces things more quickly, far more quickly than we can, in fact, follow, how do we know what it's doing? That's another problem. The, the kind of technology that has been developed that I contributed to is extremely powerful, but I mean, at the scale that companies are building them now, but also very difficult to uh, interpret, uh, you know, what is really going on inside under the hood is, is, is a problem that many scientists are like working on. It's not clear we'll figure that out, but we, we do need to invest at least as much money on um, safety and, and guardrails and governance as we are investing in making these systems more capable, which is what industry is doing now. And the industry is doing it because there are trillions of dollars to be made in coming years. So it's very tempting to just race ahead. Uh, Professor Benju, what are the positive applications that you can foresee for artificial intelligence? And how has it already positively affected what we do? So... AI is already deployed in uh, many industries, uh, in particular the, the big tech uh, companies, so all the search engine, uh, social media, e-commerce, they pretty much all use AI as a central um, uh, tool and to select information that will be sent or pushed to people. But um, if we look at something maybe more exciting in terms of positive uses, I mean, this is worth a lot of money, but um, what I'm more interested in is the application of AI in areas um, that matter to people like medicine and the environment um, or all of the things that could potentially be done to better understand um, how we can provide food for everyone on Earth. So on the medical side, this is maybe the area where there has been um, the most early progress. For example, uh, in my group and many other groups, uh, we have developed AI systems that can help recognize the content of medical images and so help medical doctors to detect problems. So these systems are not replacing doctors. They are not trained on enough data. They're not anything like the chat GPT we were discussing, that they're trained on a trillion data. Um, but they can still be extremely useful. And now there's not just the medical images, but more and more uh, development of AI in, in uh, the clinical setting and also in drug discovery, which is another area in which I've been working. Um, so there are already a few drugs that AI has helped to, to discover. On the environment side, there's a lot that is going on to use, again, the, the ability of um, AI to understand the content of images to help with um, modeling the Earth seen from satellite images. So this is used useful uh, in climate science. This is useful um, to help with modeling biodiversity. 
And um, there are also a lot of uh, explorations right now, a lot of excitement about using AI to help discover new materials, for example, for batteries, um, carbon capture, um, all kinds of things that could be transformative in coming years to help us fight climate change. Do you think there is the... uh do you sense or have you had conversations with uh, people who have decision-making powers that there's the will internationally to direct AI where you wanted to go to what you just described, as opposed to allowing it to go rogue and uh, provide or at least pr- produce that threat of nuclear weapons and pandemics and uh, the extinction of humanity? Well, until recently, there was no awareness and and not much will that could be detected to take these issues seriously. But in the last few months, uh, thanks to interviews like this one and and many other discussions that are happening globally in the media uh, with governments, um, I, for example, testified at the U.S. Senate just a few weeks ago. Um, It seems that the level of awareness of uh, the dangers and the risks um, has risen quite a bit. I it hasn't, you know, uh, risen enough yet so that governments would take uh, this as a priority, uh, like other priorities, like you know, like healthcare and and so on, and the environment. Um, but but we see some movement in the right direction. Um, I've been appointed to provide advice to the UN Secretary General, so at that level, there starts to be also concern. And in the last few years, there's been a lot of work to try to lay down the ethical principles that you know need to be respected when we develop and deploy AI. But now we, we have to move to action, and hopefully this will happen quickly. But it will take much more education, because a lot of politicians simply don't understand what this is about. It, most people don't understand what this is about. So the, those discussions are very important. Yeah, to most people, AI sounds like uh, one heck of a search engine. But uh, but it's but it's far 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 more than that. Uh, in, in about thirty seconds, I have to ask you this, and it's not intended to be negative. But why was it allowed to uh, to uh, develop in in the manner that it has, and potentially pay place uh, or, or, or present a threat to the ex- to, to the to the existence of humanity? I can't even say the words. Well, that's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure I have all the answers to this, but. I think a lot of the people, including myself, who've been developing it, didn't think that it would be coming so quickly, that we would build systems that would approach human intelligence. Uh, we thought it might be decades or centuries in the future, so we didn't worry too much and thinking, well, in the in the meantime, we'll do things that are useful for society. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but I think now we are at an inflection point where we see, oh, the progress has been much faster and it's something that's now concerning. Renting a home is a real challenge now in this country. And the most expensive place in the country is Vancouver. Rental prices are the highest. A one-bedroom apartment has reached an average, as I understand it, of more than $3,000 a month. Two-bedroom apartments, a lot more. Robert Patterson is a lawyer and tenant advocate of the Tenant Resource and Advisory Center in Vancouver, a.k.a. TRAC. And he joins us on the Roy Green Show. Robert, thank you very much for the time. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so one-bedroom apartment, on average, costs $3,000 per month. 16% increase in one year. So I have to ask you, is there any real tenant protection under law in British Columbia? 
That's a great question. I think you really get to the crux of it. I mean, when you see these kind of rent increases year over year for vacant units, what it's kind of showing us is that our current protections are insufficient. So we have a... a for tenants that are in existing tenancies, there are limits on how much rent can increase year over year. But what that does is also is create a profit incentive for landlords to try and evict people. And we hear constantly from tenants who are terrified of losing their home, knowing that you know if they've been there for even one, two, three years, but especially if they've been there long term, they tend to be seniors on fixed incomes. The loss of a home it sort of equates to the loss of being able to have really any home in their community, and it's gotten to the extent where it might be any home in beyond their community to their city maybe even the province. So it's a, absolutely a huge thing tenants are terrified about. And the pro- on, on layer on top of that, the fact that we don't have adequate protection for evictions, in particular, landlord use or no-fault evictions, which you know recent data shows comprises 85% of our evictions in BC. We're the eviction capital of Canada, and almost all of our vast majority of tenants are losing out their homes for no fault of their own, and often just so landlords can flip the units and make more money. So how does the landlord do that legally? How does the landlord in British Columbia say, I want those people out so I can get people in who are going to pay me more? Yeah. So, I mean, interestingly, there's probably not a legal way to do it insofar if they're using a no-fault eviction because a landlord is required to be acting in good faith. They have to have a good faith intention to use the unit for the the purpose that's stated on the eviction notice. So, for example, if they're saying, I'm going to move my parent in, they have to truly intend for that parent to move in. Uh, And then subsequently, the parent actually has to move in or else the tenant may be able to claim compensation. The couple problems with that, though. First, if, you know, the, the eviction does go through, either because the tenant doesn't dispute the eviction notice, perhaps because they're concerned that if they lose, they may be only given 48 hours to move, as that is the residential tenancy branch's often standard practice, um, then if the parent does move, doesn't move in, they're entitled to 12 months of rent as compensation. Uh, but there's so much profit to be made, and honestly, the more vulnerable the tenant, the lower the rent, the more possible profit and the less compensation for that tenant, um, that it's really not doing an adequate job of disincentivizing landlords from taking that route. So the word uh, is greed. Yes, I, I mean, I would agree. Uh, there, uh, ultimately, these wave of evictions, the things that are challenging and pushing tenants out of their homes, is, uh, in many, many cases, uh, greed, the desire to make more money to maximize profit from a, an investment. Okay, so what might it cost me if I were to move to Vancouver? What might it cost me, <clears throat> excuse me, to rent a comfortable but not exclusive two-bedroom apartment in the city? What would it cost? That's very challenging to say. I mean, one problem I think many people run into is simply finding anything that is available. Um, And oftentimes that pushes people into sort of precarious housing situations. People have to find roommates to live with or find an existing tenant who needs roommates. And those living situations may not be as covered by the Residential Tenancy Act. There may be fewer protections there. Um, But, you know, if you can get into one, I think the the recent data shows that vacant units are looking around $4,000. But I think what we've seen now is like one of the reasons these prices are pushed so high is because for years, the existing unaffordability has already pushed people into more and more creative situations, dividing up rental units between multiple tenants, you know, putting four people in a one bedroom or four or five people in a two bedroom, or what have you, Um, people renting uh, parts of dens or solariums. I mean, I think the signs have been there for a long time that the approach we're taking to housing isn't working by sort of pretending that we can, the market will deliver the housing we need if only we tweak some policy levers. Uh, that has shown to be not to not be the case. 
that and that approach, if we continue it, is just going to lead us further and further, you know, on the road we're going on. We need a, a market departure from that. We need a massive investment in non-market housing that hasn't really happened since probably the early 90s when the federal government pivoted out of house, pivoted out of the housing game. There are some promising signs that we're trying to get back into that model, providing more non-market housing, supports for co-op housing, social housing, non-profit housing. Um, but it's, you know, we're, we're coming at this. The building's already on fire. It's already, we're already in the midst of yeah. you know, a five-alarm yeah. fire. Um, it, we need to bring the hoses out, not the buckets. Uh, so we need yeah. drastic support uh, as fast as possible. Robert, if you're talking $4,000 a month for a two-bedroom apartment, you're talking fifty grand a year. So people who earn 60000 this is after-tax money, people who earn 60000 or 70000 pre-tax, out of the question. Absolutely. I mean, I think we're sort of to the point where I'm not sure who could afford to, first off, uh, and who can afford to rent on their own, um, given these prices. It really is only very high level of income earner. And second, uh, it's hard to imagine uh, people who can live on the, uh, sorry, with waking minimum wage. Anyone making anywhere close oh, to yeah. minimum wage, there's just nothing livable, unfortunately, in, oh. in our you know, pretty much. It's, and it's honestly not just Vancouver. If you look across the province, even smaller communities are impacted by this. Um, you know, it's, we don't get the same eye, you know, uh, eyebrow-raising numbers as you might get in Vancouver. Um, but the rate rising year over year has continued to outpace rent control, uh, the rent control stable, rent stabilization um, set in the Residential Tenancy Act. It's outpaced inflation. I mean, what does this really mean? It means a larger and larger proportion of really all the wealth generated in the province is going into the pockets of landlords. And, you know, some, some of those landlords are individuals who, you know, have been trying to claw their way into the housing market and they have a basement suite in their, in their building uh, and they're, you know, just trying to make that work. Um, but a lot of landlords, you know, probably the majority of landlords are people who own apartment buildings. Buildings. You know, if you're a family, if you're a small family, but you happen to own an apartment building in BC, you're probably a multimillionaire. Um, if they also include larger companies, they include real estate investment trusts that are effectively in pooled investment funds that are investing in housing. And really, the only thing they care about is the bottom line. They want to see a stable and increasing return on investment year over year. And that need, that desire to continue to see not just healthy returns, but growing returns is what's really putting the screws in this whole situation. Yeah, so um, today, and I, it, sorry, but, but today, oh, if I were looking to maximize uh, investment in Vancouver, I wouldn't put my money in the market. I'd put it into purchasing rental properties. For sure. And I mean, I think that's honestly a problem, right? Like on the one hand, we try to incentivize investment in housing. But what does that really mean? It's not really led to... No, you're dealing with people. You're dealing with human beings. And Absolutely a roof over their heads. Squeezing. What can you, final question for you, what can you do for the, uh, for renters in distress or track? Right. So a, a tenant who's facing a potential, you know, a landlord threatening to raise their rent or, uh, or to a victim if they don't agree to a rent increase, or indeed a tenant who gets an eviction notice, is free to reach out to track. We provide legal information on our tenant information line at 1-800-665-1185. If you go to our website at tenants.bc.ca, we have a lot of legal information. As well, we do offer uh, limited legal representation to tenants going to the residential tenancy branch. Mm-hmm. I, I'll say that, you know, I've been at track for the last five years. The demand for our service has probably at least doubled over that time. Um, so we can't help everyone, but we do our best to provide as much legal information and representation okay. as possible. Um, and yeah, it's, it's uh, 
in the t- at a time when we are living through a you know we yeah. live in the eviction capital of Canada, both as a province. It's not a pro- that's not a good title to have. That is really not a good title to have. So if you you can well, go online as well into a search engine and uh, enter track, and they'll get that information as well. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.